If you uh, have a Bible with you, do you want to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4? 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I'm not sure what number that is in the uh, church Bibles, but maybe someone can shout it out. 2 Corinthians in the New Testament after the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, Acts and Romans, and then 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. 965. It's the same in mine as well. There you go. So 2 Corinthians and uh, chapter 4. We'll begin to read it at verse 1. We'll go through to the end of the chapter. Let's hear God speak. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but... By the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants, for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not us. We're afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We're perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may be also manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested In our mortal flesh, so death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not at the things that are seen, but to the things which are unseen for the things that are seen are transient but the things that are unseen are eternal paul continues that thought in chapter five but we're going to pause there i'd like to pray and then we'll continue looking at god's word Uh, father in heaven we really want your help to understand your word together we we want to ask that the holy spirit would anoint your words as we 
uh, prayed a moment ago. Lord, we pray again now. Please instruct our hearts. We pray for attentiveness, and I pray on my part that I be clear in what I'm trying to say, and that for all of us to have any distractions removed from us, so that we just be able to hear you speak, and that we may grow to know and love Jesus more as he has loved us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There's one thing I meant to say um, earlier on before in introductions, um, and that was just how you know yourselves at Trinity Chippenham. And the, uh, uh, the, uh, we, we go back, uh, Peter and Dave and Dave and David, a few Davids, and Mike and I had the privilege of doing Cordeo together for the months, so that was amazing. Uh, back in the tail end of 2013, Peter approached me and asked if I would become part of what was called an accountability group. Essentially, this was a group of men whom, to whom the startup team here at Trinity Chippenham would be accountable to, uh, giving regular updates to us and um, seeking wisdom, if there was wisdom to offer. Uh, they gave us the free invitation to dig deep into the process and ask how they were conducting themselves as leaders in the short term and how they were planning to lead the church in the initial stages. So that's a kind of more recent and uh, ongoing connection with Trinity. Um, I have a, a real privilege of being part of that accountability group. I want to ask you a question that probably might sound a bit cheesy. Has anyone heard of Blind Date years ago in the 80s? Anyone watch Blind Date? So there was always these kind of tacky questions like, if you were, you know, such, what would you be? Like, I've got a, got a kind of question like that for you. If you were an item of crockery, what would you be? Quite interesting question, isn't it? So uh, a few suggestions for you to get your minds thinking. Uh, a fine bone china mug. Yeah, a few of you like that. Delicate and fragile. <laughs> Won't go any further with that one. Or maybe a pudding... Always ready to receive sweet things. I think my wife would be the pudding bowl. She loves her sweets. A chunky mug. Always good to have a brew with. That was me. A solid crock pot. Unbending in pressure. You know, it's, it's an interesting question, isn't it? And you can see probably where I'm going with it because we read in our passage in 7 that the Christian... Paul describes himself as a jar of clay. He's writing to a church in Corinthians. I'm not sure if you know the background. If I can just give a brief overview of what's happening here in 2 Corinthians. Paul is writing to a church a second time. In fact, it's probably the third time, the letter in between that's been lost that he refers to. But he's writing to a church who have had people coming in and saying, well, these apostles, Paul and the others, they're not really apostles. They're they're not really genuine. They may have helped you get started, but they're not the real deal. And so what Paul is doing largely in this letter is writing to defend his apostleship. He's writing to confirm that, yes, indeed, God had spoken through him and those who were with him. But he does it in a really interesting way. So I'd like to suggest to you, if you were a PR team, if you were a group of people looking at how Paul was writing this letter, and you were assessing how effective he was likely to be, in confirming that he was the real deal, you'd probably be shaking your head by the end of the letter. You'd be going, 
Okay, well, at least we can make some money here because if he employs us, we, we've got lots to suggest to Paul here. Because in actually seeking to affirm or confirm his apostleship, instead of claiming better skills, instead of claiming greater articulation or supreme confidence, Paul authenticates his ministry by highlighting the opposite, his weaknesses. I don't know if you find that interesting this afternoon. Let me just give you some examples in chapters 1, 2, and 3. Chapter 1, verse 5, he highlights the fact that he suffered Chapter 1, verse 8, he talks about the burdens that they had. And again in chapter uh, 1, verse 8, he says that these burdens were so much that we despaired of life itself. Wow. This is a man who really went to the edge, struggling. In chapter 1, verse 10, he talks about the fact that they needed deliverance. God delivered him from deadly peril. He, He was in need. He was in anguish in verse 12 for them in his heart. In chapter 2, verse 13, there's anxiety as he's wrestling with the fact that Titus is nowhere to be seen. And he describes that he had no rest in his spirit. He's literally anxious. And chapter 3, verse 5, Paul describes himself as insufficient. We are not sufficient in ourselves. See, this is a man uh, who is not authenticating apostleship by saying, look at me how big and great and strong I am. He's saying, actually, the opposite. It doesn't sound very impressive if you're going by man's economy. Paul recognizes that he was weak, sometimes anxious and perplexed. You know, being a leader, a true leader, after God's heart, means that we serve He wrote a lot to the Corinthians about his heart. Let's chase very briefly through 2 Corinthians what he has to say about his heart. Chapter 2, verse 4, he says, I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart. That's the mark of a true spiritual leader, someone who is uh, is, is, um, ministering out of the heart. Sometimes that hurts. Chapter 3, verse 2, he says, You are our letters of commendation written on our hearts. That's a picture we might come back to, but it's an amazing thought. If you know the uh, Corinthians and what kind of things they struggled with, are you familiar with some of the things they're battling with in the first letter that Paul addresses? And he says, you're my letter of conversation written on my heart. Wow. He talks about having this ministry. We read it in, in the reading. We don't lose heart. And again, he says it in verse 16, we don't lose heart. Chapter 6, verse 11, he says, we've spoken freely to you. Our heart is wide open. Again, the mark of servant leadership is to to have wide open hearts. In chapter 7, he urges them to make room in their hearts for them. And he goes on to say this. This is just beautiful. You are in our hearts to live together and die together. It's just kind of, wow. He's not up there going, well, I'm above you, and you're, you're down here. He, he's right in amongst the church family, Corinth, saying, I'm with you. My heart is wide open. Paul recognized that to share the Father's heart and the Son's heart for mission was to give himself completely from the heart. So I want to just make a side application at this point to you as, as a church particularly in the light of the fact I'm on the accountability group, I want to ask you two direct, harder, uh, two direct questions that will be harder for the startup team to ask you. So I want to ask you as a church collectively. Firstly, do you want to be 
Uh, do you want the future leadership team? I know you're making this transition through to a leadership team in the future. Do you want the future leadership team of Trinity Chippenham to be transparent, vulnerable, and servant-hearted according with the pattern laid out in God's word? Would that be a fair description of what you want your leadership team to be? Let me read it again just to give you time to think. Do you want the future leadership team of Trinity Chippenham to be transparent, vulnerable, and servant-hearted? Those be good qualities to look for in a leadership team. If your answer to that is yes, then I have a second question for you. Are you going to be prepared as a church family to love, support, honour, and care for them as they practice open-hearted ministry among your church family? Because if you're desiring to have leaders that are servant-hearted and giving themselves, like Paul, to the ministry of the church, they're going to need caring for because they are also human. Just a story that, uh, from, from uh, right six years ago when I began pastoral work, I felt, as I still do now, very underqualified. And uh, the, I was appointed from within our church, the church leadership team at the time, which was a, a kind of a church planting team, uh, spoke to me and, and uh, we, we went through the process of church leadership. And uh, as I accepted the call, I had a letter from a, a couple of the church, uh, uh, a couple of the members of the church. And they wrote this letter to me. And I wish I had, I was looking for it yesterday to try and read it to you because it was beautiful. It basically said this, um, we just want you to know that everything we have is yours. We don't want you to need for anything. Uh, if you ever have any needs in any way, hit the phone number. And it was just this lovely assurance that my church family was with me and, and that we were a family. It didn't place me above anyone. It placed me amongst them as one of the church family. And from that position, God gave me that privilege of leading with the leadership team. I really appreciated that. Can I urge you as a church family, whoever your leadership team is, they're going to open their hearts wide to you if, if they're worth anything. Care for them and, and encourage them in that. So back to the passage. So Paul recognizes his weakness. He recognizes that he is not the one who can supply all that the Corinthians need. So who is the hero? Have a look back in chapter, uh, the first two or three chapters in 2 Corinthians, and we find that there is a hero. God is the one, chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, who comforts. They only can comfort because they have been comforted by God. The end of verse 4 there. God is the one that delivered them from death. God is the one that gives grace in verse 12. In verse 21, establishes them together in Christ. In verse 22, God has given the Holy Spirit as a guarantee. In verse, chapter 2, verse 14, God always leads them to triumph in the gospel. In chapter 3, verse 3, God wrote the Corinthians. God, the Holy Spirit, wrote them on Paul's heart. See, there's a hero here, isn't there? God. God were at work in their lives. God in his wonder and his love. And we're going to unpack that a little bit more as we go into chapter 4. But I want us to kind of set chapter 4 up very briefly as we look at the end of chapter 3. Because Paul says at the beginning, therefore having this ministry by the mercy of God, we don't lose heart. What ministry? What ministry is Paul talking about? We find at the end of chapter 3 is there's a view of the glory of the law. And the glory of the law is depicted in the face of Moses. Do you remember Moses' face that shone? But the reality of that glory was that it was fading. 
It's a bit like a, it's a bad illustration maybe, but suntan. You know, you, you come back glowing from your holidays and you think, yay. And then if, if, this, if you'd like getting a tan. Uh, and then after a few weeks, you just go back to this kind of pale white color. like, boom. You know, it's kind of, it's the fading glory of the summer tan. Well, this illustrates the law, the glow of the law that shone on Moses' face was only ever going to be temporary. In fact, he put the veil over his face, it says in the passage, because it was fading. Because it was fading. But there's another glory that shines far greater. And we see that at the end of chapter 3. It's the, the glory of the, the, the new covenant. The, the glory of the ministry of righteousness through Christ. And this glory, look at the end of chapter 3, uh, verse 18. And we with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So Paul carries on his argument that because of this abiding glory, or this ministry of righteousness, by the mercy of God, we don't give up. Why would Paul be tempted to give up? Because ministry is hard. Serving God with all your heart costs. And so there were times when Paul was tempted to give up. But he's saying we're not going to give up. We're not going to... Uh, turn away from the one who has saved us and given us hope. And it's wonderfully illustrated now in verse, we're going to skip down to verse 6. I know there's so much in this passage, as I was reading it again just now, I'm thinking, there is just so much here. But we're just going to look at verses 6 and 7 in the time remaining. Verse 6, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of of Jesus Christ. So it's a powerful image, isn't it? The, the kind of creation of the world. Think back to nothingness. Think back to black and kind of, well, just nothing. I can't really imagine nothing because we're always in something, aren't we? But this was a time when there was nothing. And into this nothingness, light shines. And with that light comes life and vitality and the creation of the world. And in that same way, the God that shone into the darkness has shone into our hearts. And it's a a great picture because my heart without God is like nothingness. It's not like I had a, a bit of good to give him, like I could offer him something. He just needs to top it up a bit. It's not the case. My heart's dark without the light of the gospel. I cannot come to him until he breaks through. And look at the wording here, to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. It's quite a sentence, isn't it? The light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. I want to ask you, what what face of Jesus Christ? I'm sorry if that sounds a weird question, but what face of Jesus Christ? If you were to study the context, uh, the contours of the face that Jesus, uh, the face of Jesus that Paul is speaking of, who would you see? Would you see the, the young Jesus in his early ministry? Or would you maybe see the, the, the face of Jesus in those three years when he walked on earth declaring the kingdom of God? See, I think the, the view that Paul has of Jesus when he talks about the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus, I think it's the face of the crucified Jesus. I think this is where the glory of God is best revealed. Just um, 
think about that for a moment. Because Paul begins his letter about the sufferings. Verse 5, we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings. He speaks in the first letter about not knowing anything among them except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul keeps the Lord Jesus Christ, the person of the cross, in full view in his proclamation of the gospel. And so when we think about God shining into our lives and bringing the light of the knowledge of the glory of God, we see the face of Jesus, the crucified one. It's similar to when Jesus was speaking at the end of his ministry, before he died. You see Jesus and Greeks come to him. John 12, you may be familiar with that passage. John 12, the Greeks come to him and Jesus says, Now is the Son of Man glorified. Now is the Son of Man glorified. And you you have this, what is that glory? What does that look like? And, And then you see these next words where Jesus says, that the Son of Man is going to be lifted up. When he's lifted up, he'll draw all people to himself. What's he speaking about when he talks about being lifted up? What's he speaking about? The cross. Is that possible? The glory of the cross? Those words just don't seem to connect. Glory is about, you know, Sanchez scoring an amazing goal yesterday. Glory is about winning. Glory is about success. Glory is about being up there. And and, and now we've got in full view the greatest work in history with a marred face, with brokenness, with, uh, with tears, with blood dripping down. When we talk about the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, I think we're meant to see the scarred, brow pierced, tender eyed, blood stained face of Jesus. You see, if we've got that in view, that God comes and presents his glory to us in the face of and verse 7 makes perfect sense. Have a look at verse 7. We have this treasure, the treasure of Jesus, in jars of clay, so that the surpassing power belongs to God and not us. Well, two things just to think about here as we stay in verse 7. The reality of being a jar of clay and the reason for being a jar of clay. The reality and the reason. Let's think about the reality first. The reality of being a jar of clay. I was trying to think of a modern day equivalent to jars of clay. Um, Have you ever heard of Tupperware? Just out of interest, let's just do a quick poll of the room. Put your hands up if you've heard of Tupperware. Most people, even young people. Wow. Do they still make Tupperware? Still buy Tupperware? You can. Is it kind of like the elite? So, yeah, well, that's the thing. I remember when I was a kid, Tupperware parties. And mum and dad say, you have to go to bed early tonight because we're having a Tupperware party. And I was like, what is this party? So, like, it sounds like a, a disease that we're made aware of. It's a Tup awareness evening. You know, what is it? Tupperware party. I couldn't get my mind around it. And then plastic started appearing in our house in all shapes and sizes. It's just kind of like we still have mugs today, Tupperware mugs in our picnic box, and back home we always used to fight over the brown one I have no idea why, it looks gross now but anyway well that's not in view here <laughs> having, having set all of that up that's not what I'm talking about, because Tupperware quite frankly is indestructible I don't, you, you can, well, I don't know just the fact that it still exists in my house says something to its indestructibility so Tupperware is not in view as a modern equivalent, what about paper plates what about Chinese uh, yeah. the, the um, thick carton yeah, you, you kind of 
It's one of those things where you could probably throw it away, but you can also make use of it. Has anyone got a few Chinese plastic cartons tucked away somewhere in their home? Quite useful. After a while, they start to get manky, and you can chuck them away. That's, that's the best I can come up with. You may come up with your own. But that was the kind of thing they used for these clay jars. They, they weren't special. We tend to think of crockery being, you know, you keep it for quite a while. But in those days, they'd roughly make them, didn't take long at all, and they would have them in abundance in the house. If they broke, mum did not cry. They were, they were just uh, throwaway items. Apparently, now I can't find a source for this, so hold this one uh, lightly in your hand. Apparently, um, put it, uh, let me set this one up. Have you ever had a baked bean can from the Betterware catalogue and you can unscrew it and put your valuables inside? It always creases me up, the idea of that, because you're kind of trying to find your valuables and you're going through the tin, you know, trying to... Anyway, it's a... apparently these jars of clay had been known to do that with... with person's treasure. In order to keep the would-be thieves away in first century, they'd put some of their vessels in just one, uh, treasures in one of these vessels just lying around the house, and no one would think to look there. Well, how do you feel about being a jar of clay? Do you feel very clay jarish today? I can, I can guarantee, not guarantee, I could probably, mostly guarantee, if you're younger, you probably don't feel like a jar of clay. Because when I was younger, I just felt indestructible. It was football all the way, and I was going to play for England. I never did in the end, but I was, you know, it's just like, yeah, I'm, I'm indestructible. <clears throat> Until about a few years ago, when I started walking down the stairs, <clears throat> and my knees just started crunching, and I realised then <laughs> that I was indestructible. My body is now falling apart. We are jars of clay. And Paul uses this everyday practice to describe the nature of who we are. And that the light of the knowledge of the glory of God has has shone like treasure being placed into a jar of clay. It's a a lovely image. There's treasure in earthen vessels. And this is the presence of Christ in our hearts. Notice not a gift from Christ, but the treasure in our hearts is Jesus himself. It's the face of Jesus. It's the person of Jesus Dwelling in our hearts through faith. The shining, non-fading, glorious face of Jesus. And that's a reality for you if you've received the Holy Spirit's invitation to Jesus as your saviour. You have his presence in your heart through the Holy Spirit. He has come to make his home in you. A Christian is a jar of clay who, if you were to peer over the lid, you'd see the scarred yet shining face of Jesus, the one who gave himself for us. Have you ever seen in your life a kind of a picture of the reality of Christ shining, the treasure shining in a jar of clay in someone's life? Have you ever perhaps known somebody as a Christian who has got the light of Christ shining in them, even though they're very frail? I've seen this recently um, in, in my dad. I just want to tell you a little bit about him and what's been going on, because it, it illustrates the point. My, my dad has had cancer. Uh, uh, summer he had his large bowel removed and then just on the 6th of May he had to have his duodenum and part of his stomach removed. Um, he's still in hospital now. He's being fed by uh, a, f- a food drip, and his, com- his stomach's currently rejecting what's going into him. So he's still frail. 
but he's in, in good spirits. But the reason I'm telling you this is that a couple of weeks ago, I went to see him, and uh, I have a, had a real picture of this treasure in earthen vessels. Uh, my, as my mum and dad said goodbye to him on the... To, um, every time I turn here, the mic goes. Sorry about that. Try and, try and talk over there without the mic uh, disappearing. Um, as we went to see him, he wanted to walk down the corridor with us, and he shuffled down the corridor, bringing this drip bag, you know, trolley with these drips hanging down. He, he shuffled down. I've never seen my dad shuffle. He's 67. I'd say he's a fairly fit 67. And yet he was feeling like he was 20 years older. His body has taken a hammering, and I've never seen him so frail physically. We walked with him, gave him a hug, and then we went through the double doors out of the ward. And we watched him shuffle slowly back to his room. And for me, it was a real um, kind of eye-opener to see my dad so frail. And yet, when he got halfway, he kind of knew that we were watching through the double doors. And he just turned and looked at us, and there was this kind of light shining. The only way I can describe it is that there was a treasure shining in his eyes. We'd had devotions a few minutes earlier, and he'd shared with us just the wonder of what God is doing in his life. It's tough, it's painful for and yet there was this treasure shining out of his heart. If ever there was a contrast between what can be seen from the eyes and what was seen in the flesh. The outer man is perishing. But as Paul wrote in verse 16, the inner man is being renewed every day. Maybe you've seen it. Can you identify with that? Have you seen that in people you know? Christians who are going through the mill, whose bodies physically are wasting away as all of our bodies are, and yet there's a light shining. The treasure is seen. The reality is that whatever is in the pot, that's what will be shown when the pot is shaken. When the pot is cracked, when this jar is shaken, when the crack starts to show, or there's a hole in the crack, whatever's in the pot, that's going to show out. And so if we have Christ, the treasure, in the pot of our life, that's what's going to shine when we're up against it. Think of Jesus and what he said in Matthew 12, verse 33. He said this, either make the tree good and the fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. He's just making a contrast. You can't have a mixture. The tree is good, the fruit will be good. If the tree is bad, the tree will be bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. He's talking to Pharisees, you brood of vipers. How can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person, out of his good treasure, brings forth good. The evil person, out of his evil treasure, brings forth evil. We all have treasure in our hearts. We all live for something. We all have something that drives us and that gives us delight and that motivates us. And if Jesus is your treasure, when the, the, the glass, the jar, jar is cracked, that's what's going to be shown, Jesus. So here's the big idea of this verse. God will do his wonderful work in the world, and it goes beyond what we can imagine through weak vessels like you and me. Did you see that in verse 7? We have this treasure in jars of clay so that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. 
That word surpassing there is a word that we get an English word from. In the Greek, it's hyperbole, and we get our English word hyperbole. Do you know what hyperbole is? That's a kind of fancy word. Hyperbole is when you exaggerate. If you said something like, this sermon's lasting for eternity, that's exaggeration, unless indeed I carried on for eternity. Um, If you, you know, you get the idea of hyperbole, you use expressive language. I could eat a horse. That's hyperbole. But this is the, the Greek word literally means to shoot ahead or throw beyond. It, it, it's a word that means to go far reaching. And so this is the excessive and beyond ourselves power of God. God will do his wonderful work and it goes beyond what we could imagine through weak vessels like you and like me. We've just finished a series in the book of Acts and it's just been thrilling to see how unstoppable the work of the Holy Spirit is. If you trace that journey through the book of Acts, you see the church that was bullied and pushed back and driven out and hounded and in some cases... And then you see that the church is unstoppable. You see the way God worked through the weak and the foolish, and the broken, and the despised, and the just plain ordinary in the book of Acts. You see the places like the temple of Artemis in chapter 19. I went there last November and just was amazed to see that this seventh wonder, or one of the seven wonders of the world, is now just a field that's largely forgotten. The church did not thrive when money and power and acceptance was thrust upon it. In fact, these things did much to make it weak. God's way of working is to reach proud, stubborn souls like you. So I want to... You, you may be feeling... Right now, you may feel that you're very much a jar of clay. I don't know how you feel this afternoon. You might feel up against it. You may feel that when you're cracked, the treasure just doesn't seem to be showing, at least the treasure you want to be showing, Christ in, in all his beauty. And often God will show us through our crackedness, through our weakness, that our gaze is not on Christ. And what comes out of us sometimes in the struggle is not a reflection of the love that God has put into us. We, we don't reflect God in that way. So what can we do? These are times when we just see ourselves in, in the mirror and our gaze can be lifted again to Christ. I encourage you this afternoon, in that place right now, you know when the cracks show, it's you that's seen and it's your frailty. Gaze to Christ. He's the only one that can change the way that we are. He's the only one that can transform us from glory to glory. Gaze on Christ. Look on him. Be real with him. Be real about where you're at. And just find all that you have and all that you need in him. just want to finish with those, last, those two verses again and then we'll pray. Uh, verse 6. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us.
Let's talk to the Lord. Let's ask for his help. Father in heaven, we really want to just thank you for the way in which um, you have placed an amazing treasure in our hearts. Thank you for the treasure of your son, Jesus. Thank you that it's, it's a gift that is freely given because of your love for us. We thank you that when Christ, the, the, the crucified one, comes to, to remain in our hearts because he has risen, because he has conquered the grave, he comes to rest within us, Lord, that that's the treasure that gives us real meaning, that gives us hope, that gives us purpose. And we want to ask Heavenly Father that you'd help us to keep our gaze on him. Lord, we recognize that we're going to mess up. We, we recognize that that's the reality of being jars of clay. But we want to be encouraged this afternoon that we can bring our gaze back to Christ, back to the one who brings us that, that joy and brings us that healing in our lives. So help us, we pray, to look to Christ and to find our all in him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.